The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. All right, I'm going to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. For our reading this morning, we're going to look at verses uh, 26 through 50 of Mark chapter 14. Chapter 14, whoops, did we just turn it off there? Am I okay? Okay, sorry. All right, verse 26 of chapter 14, we read that when Jesus and his disciples had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little further, Jesus fell on the ground, and he prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And Jesus came, and he found his disciples sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And again, Jesus went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found his disciples sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Verse 
And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. But one of the disciples who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they, that is, Jesus' disciples, all left him and fled. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to this text of Scripture. Most of us are familiar with this passage. Christ praying in Gethsemane and his disciples repeatedly falling asleep. We ask that our familiarity with this passage would not make us insensitive to or blind to the lessons it would teach us this morning. We ask, Lord, that you'd open our eyes to see things that maybe we haven't seen before that we would even perceive ourselves in these three men. And we pray this, Lord, for uh, your glory, but also for our eternal good. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Since I'm scheduled to preach the next two weeks, I thought I would pick a passage where I could address the themes of the text in two weeks. And so uh, I've decided to focus on this text, this incident before us, where Christ is dealing with his sleepy disciples. And as I've reflected upon this text, I've seen at least two primary themes that emerge from the passage. The first is that this narrative exposes the believer's remaining sin. It exposes the believer's remaining sin. And then secondly, the narrative encourages the believer's weak faith. It encourages our weak faith. Now my plan is to address the second of these themes next week. Today we're going to focus on the theme, the believer's sin exposed. So please Come back next week if you want to be encouraged. Hopefully, even today's message will sort of paradoxically be encouraging to us. But my purpose today primarily is to, as it were, pave the way for, I think, the real climax and primary focus of the text. And so to do that, I want us to focus here on 
the sin of these three disciples. And I want us to try to see ourselves in them. Now you may be wondering why focus a message on our sin. That seems like a very dreary theme. But I have three reasons for doing so. And hopefully this will attract your interest and uh, help you to focus on the message this morning. So, why should we consider this topic? Well, first of all, because the Bible itself reveals the fact as well as the nature of the believer's remaining sin. As we look at this text, we're going to see that the biblical writer, Mark, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, takes great pains to underscore the sin of these three disciples, even going so far as to highlight its aggravated nature. And dear friends, this is not the only place where the Bible calls attention to the fact that genuine believers still commit sin. In fact, the Bible doesn't try to hide or gloss over the sins of even the most godly Bible characters. It exposes Noah's drunkenness, Lot's incest, Abraham's deceit, Moses' hot temper, David's adultery and murder, and of course, Peter's threefold denial. These are just facts. These are realities for the whole world to see. And so, if God takes the time to highlight this reality, it must be something important for us to consider. The second reason I want us to see this is that you and I have a tendency to think too highly of ourselves. Now, none of us here would claim sinless perfection. None of us here would deny that we're sinners, but there's a tendency in all of us to minimize our sin. In fact, that tendency is part of our problem. Now, we don't usually do this on a theological level. We do it more on a practical level. At a theological level, all of us here, most of us here at least, would probably affirm what theologians refer to as the doctrine of total depravity. Now, by the way, that's misunderstood. That does not mean that we're all as bad as we could be. What it does mean is that sin permeates every aspect of our humanity. Our thoughts, our emotions, our decisions, all of those aspects of our humanity are affected by sin. And we affirm that. We even affirm that as believers we still have remaining sin. We sing songs like Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. But so, suppose someone comes up to you, a brother or sister, after the service, and they seek to address some sin that they see in your life. All of a sudden, we're not so wretched anymore. We become defensive. We begin to rationalize. We begin to minimize 
that sin. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not denying the fact that sometimes it's legitimate to defend our behavior, okay? But what I'm simply trying to underscore is the fact that all of us had to admit there is this tendency that we sometimes succumb to at one time or another to think too highly of ourselves and to minimize our remaining sin. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Bible more than once highlights the believer's remaining sin. The third reason why I want to consider this this morning is this. Confessing our remaining sin is a precondition for more grace. If you're a believer, you want the grace of God. You pray for the grace of God. You look to the grace of God. But in his first epistle, the apostle Peter, and he writes this not just out of theory, but from experience, says this, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so coming to grips with our remaining sin indeed can be a very painful and humiliating experience. Nevertheless, it is an experience that opens the door to greater measures of God's grace. And as we're going to see next time, there's a lot of grace in this passage. Lots of it. But we can't get access to that grace until we've first been humbled. We can't have our faith encouraged until our sin is first exposed. So for these reasons, I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning focusing on the sin of Jesus' disciples in this text. I want to develop this theme under two simple headings. If you're taking notes, children, make sure you check on your parents uh, around the lunch table that they took notes, that they remember. These are the two headings, very simple. The sin identified and the sin explained. So first of all, the sin identified. And to identify their sin, we need to go back in our text to verse 32. Jesus there gives them this directive. He says, sit here while I pray. And then following that directive, Jesus takes uh, three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, into the garden. And then after disclosing to them the profound emotional grief he was undergoing, Jesus gives them a specific command in the latter part of verse 34. Look what he says there. Remain here and watch. Now the word translated watch refers to a state of mental alertness that presupposes some imminent danger. It's the kind of word that a military commander would give to his soldiers when they're on patrol. He would tell them to be vigilant, to watch, to be alert because of some imminent danger. And we can infer from Christ's remarks in verse 38 that the command to watch also included the command to pray, watch and 
pray, he goes on to say, that you may not enter into temptation. But notice how these three disciples respond to Jesus' directive. After the first season of prayer, he returns to his disciples, verse 37, and he finds them, the text says, sleeping. Again, in verse 40, it says he came again, and he found them sleeping. And then in verse 41, he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? And I can assure you, Ambien was not the problem. No, their problem was what we might call sinful slumber, or more precisely, spiritual apathy. A lack of spiritual concern for themselves and for their Savior. Not once but three times. That's the sin identified, but now consider with me the sin explained. I want to look at its basic essence, its aggravated nature, and its unfortunate result. So first of all, consider its basic essence. And we can view it from three perspectives. First of all, it was very simply put, a violation of a divine command. Remember, they weren't just receiving a request from a friend, from a buddy. It wasn't a suggestion. They were receiving a directive, a command from the one whom they had just earlier confessed to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And in fact, they had heard Jesus say in his farewell discourse, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And so these men knew that Jesus' directive to them was to be treated as a directive from God. And yet, they disobey a divine command. Secondly, notice with me, it was a careless disregard for their own spiritual welfare. Remember, Jesus had warned them that Satan wanted to tempt them to be disloyal to him. And so he gives them the directive to prepare them for that temptation. Why? Well, because Jesus is very concerned with their spiritual well-being. By the way, brothers and sisters, this is true of all of God's commandments. Moses says to the Israelites, God's commandments and statutes are for your good. Deuteronomy 10.13. In other words, God desires our eternal happiness and joy. He wants us to be concerned about the same. But sadly, like the disciples, we often fail to give serious thought to our ultimate good, but instead we're preoccupied with our temporal comforts and conveniences. 
Such was the sin of Jesus' disciples. They failed to heed Jesus' directives because they carelessly disregarded their own spiritual welfare. But then thirdly, it was a selfish disregard for the needs of their own Savior. According to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, Jesus said this to His disciples. Matthew adds a detail that's not in Mark. He says this, Stay here and watch with me. You see, friends, Jesus did not depend on their companionship and prayers, but He really wanted their companionship and prayers. And yet, alas, though Jesus shows tremendous concern for them, they seem to show little concern for Him. Instead, we find a selfish disregard for the Savior and for their best friend in His hour of greatest need. And so we can summarize the basic essence of their sin as a violation of the two greatest commandments. They failed to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they failed to love their neighbor as their self. And on these two great commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. So that's the basic essence of their sin. Consider with me now its aggravated nature. First of all, they committed this sin repeatedly. Not just once, not just twice, but three times. And I don't think the point of the passage is, well, at least they didn't do it four times. No, I think the point of the passage is just to underscore the fact that they kept doing it repeatedly. Haven't we been there and done that? Right? What do we call that? A besetting sin? We keep doing it. That's what these men did. Notice also they committed it repeatedly despite its relative ease. Jesus says in verse 37, by way of rebuke, could you not watch one hour? That's all he asked for. Just watch and pray one hour? Yeah, it was late. They were tired. Their bodies were worn out. But look, Jesus isn't saying fly to the moon. Jesus is not asking them to do something beyond the reach of their human nature or beyond the reach of divine grace. Just one hour of watchfulness and prayer, that's all. And yet even that was too difficult for these men. Dear friends, in reality, Jesus, as the Bible says, as He Himself says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He never asks us to do anything for which He will not supply the grace and strength for us to carry it out. And yet, despite the relative ease of His commandments, we find ourselves committing the same sins again and again. 
But that's not all. Notice, thirdly, by way of its aggravated nature, these men repeatedly committed this sin despite previous privileged fellowship. Remember, they, they just had that intimate time with Jesus in the upper room. They supped with him. They had the Lord's Supper with him. He washed their feet. And then he gave them this beautiful farewell discourse. They sang a hymn together. And he even, in their presence, lifted up his voice to his Father in heaven and prayed in their presence that wonderful high priestly prayer. Can you imagine if you had the opportunity to spend an evening with Jesus? To enjoy a meal with him. To have him administer the Lord's Supper. To sing hymns with you. To teach you. And then as he departs, to pray for God's blessing on you. Would you say that that would result in something we might call a spiritual high? Well, these men had all of that. And yet it was on the very heels of this blessed fellowship that they disregarded a request from Jesus not once, but three times. And again, before we you know, point the finger of condemnation at these men, brothers and sisters, how many times have we sinned on the heels of the most blessed fellowship with our Savior? We experience a wonderful Lord's Day. God speaks to our hearts in the preaching. He manifests His presence in the worship. He encourages and strengthens our faith through the fellowship of God's people. And yet Monday morning comes. And we find ourselves completely out of touch with spiritual realities. And instead we're mired in carnality. In my own experience, I have to say sometimes that the, the devil's strongest temptations have come on the heels of having experienced some profound spiritual blessing. We may be riding the crest of a spiritual wave one moment, and the next moment we may be trudging through the swamp of carnality. But notice also as we're considering the aggravated nature of their sin. They also committed this sin despite repeated instruction and warning. He'd already warned them that they would forsake him, verse 27. And remember, very explicit with Peter, he says, truly I say to you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And so this was not a sin of ignorance. They were fully aware of the danger. They were fully aware of what Jesus expected of them. And yet they failed. 
And he comes to them again and he repeats his instruction with the warning. Verse 38, watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Notice, by the way, he doesn't give them some new teaching. He doesn't say, well, that first bit of teaching didn't work. So I better come up with something new, something maybe more catchy, maybe some spiritual secret key to the Christian life that will help them. No. He tells them the same thing he'd already told them. That's all they needed to know. No new commandment, no secret key for Christian living. Rather, the same old command, the same old warning over and over again, and yet these men fail to take heed. Again, don't we see ourselves in these men? We've heard the same instruction over and over and over again. The Spirit of God has convicted us of the same sin over and over again. We have biblical truth oozing out of our pores. And yet we still sin. We still fail. But then fifthly, and finally, as we're considering the aggravated nature of their sin, and, and, and you may be thinking, you know, boy, you're really belaboring this. But, but I think it's in the text. It's in the text. I mean, the Holy Spirit didn't have to highlight their sin. He could have just said they did it once, but he didn't. But consider this fact. They committed this sin despite a perfect living example right before their eyes. Folks, Jesus did not teach these men by theory alone. He taught them by example, and such was even the case here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not only did he command them to watch and pray, but he himself was fervently watching and praying within eyesight and within hearing of these disciples. So they couldn't use the excuse, you know, Lord, I don't know how to do that. And you know what? Neither can we, right? Because we have the New Testament that shows us how Jesus lived, not just what he taught, but how he lived it out. We can't say, well, Lord, I just don't understand what you're requiring of me. I can't conceptualize the sorts of attitudes and behaviors you expect of me. Can't use that excuse. The Apostle John writes, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Paul says, you want to know how to do that? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Peter himself says, Jesus left us an example to follow that we might walk in his steps. And so if Peter and James and John were here this morning, I can guarantee you they would make absolutely no excuses for their behavior. And in light of Christ's living example before us, neither should we. 
And so as to its basic substance, their spiritual apathy was a violation of the two great commandments. As to its aggravated nature, committed repeatedly, despite the relative ease of the command, despite privileged fellowship, despite plenty of clear instruction and warning, and despite a perfect living example. But then finally, consider with me its unfortunate result. A disappointed and deserted Savior. Try to imagine for a moment the disappoint that Jesus would have felt when he came back not once but three times to find these men fast asleep. They had spent three years under his teaching and fellowship. And yet their love for him was not strong enough to keep them watching for just one hour. Suppose you're on your deathbed and you invite your three best friends. You're in great pain and agony. And you said, I have one request. Could you just sit right here and, and watch and pray for me? Just one hour. That's, that's my, my one request, my last request. I just need your companionship. I need your prayers. Five minutes later, you open your eyes, and they're snoring, fast asleep. And you shake them, and you say, could, could you guys, I, I wanted you to pray. Would you mind praying? Ten minutes later, they're doing the same thing, sleeping. Wouldn't that be just a little bit disappointing? Not only did their disregard for his commandment disappoint the Lord, but as the account makes clear, it resulted in their desertion of Christ. When the temple guards arrested Jesus, we read in verse 50, and the disciples all left him and fled. And as Peter predicted, uh, or Jesus predicted, rather, Peter went on to deny him three times. Brothers and sisters, when you and I commit such sins, we not only grieve the Spirit of God who lives within us, but we grieve the heart of our beloved Savior. Every time we disregard His commandments, there's a sense in which we're deserting His cause. And that's just the unfortunate result of our spiritual apathy. Now, before we close with two lines of practical application, let me remind you that I am just focusing on their sin this morning, and I really want you to come back next week to have your faith strengthened and encouraged as we focus on Jesus' response. Because I'm going to tell you right now, we are going to be absolutely blown away by the profound patience and kindness and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ towards these men. If it had been one of us, we would have written them off. 
we would have turned our back on them. But the Bible tells us, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We're going to see that next week. But before we do, I'm preparing the way by underscoring the believer's remaining sin. Not just their sin, our sin. You say, Dr. Bob, I feel wounded this morning. I want to respond, that's okay. Because you know what the Bible says? Listen to this. Proverbs 20, 30. Blows that wound, cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. And that's what I hope is going to happen to us this morning as we are reminded of the seriousness of the aggravated nature of our remaining sin. I'm hoping that the ultimate result will be a cleansing effect a purifying effect, an encouraging effect on our faith. Two brief applications in closing. Number one, let us cultivate and maintain a greater awareness of and sensitivity to our remaining sin. It would be an absolute tragedy if we read this passage and the only response we had was to be condemnatory towards the disciples. Is to look at them and say, I would have never done that. What a shame that Peter, James, and John didn't stay awake and pray for Jesus. I hope that's not our only response. But I hope as we read this text and meditate on these These shocking realities, their selfishness, their carelessness, their focus on the here and now and not on the life to come. I hope that we feel convicted. I mean, think for a minute, dear brothers and sisters, the love and concern not just that Jesus had towards these men, but that Jesus has towards you and me. Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Consider that fact, and then consider the fact how little we pray for our own souls, for our own spiritual growth, for our own victory over sin. The love of Christ should constrain us to live not for ourselves, but unto him who died for us and rose again. And yet, we're still so full of self-ambition and sinful pride. Becoming a Christian should not make us think less seriously about our sin. It should actually make us think more seriously about our sin.
Many of you are familiar with the great New England theologian Jonathan Edwards. Not only a man with a reputation for being a deep thinker, but he also had a great reputation for being a very pious and godly and humble man. The year he assumed the role of pastor in Northampton, he wrote the following in his diary. Resolved to set apart days of meditation on particular subjects as sometimes to set apart an entire day for the consideration of the greatness of my sins. And then sometime later he wrote the following in his diary. He said, Often since I have lived in this town, I've had very affecting views of my own sinfulness and vileness. Very frequently to such a degree as to hold me in a kind of loud weeping. So that I have often been forced to shut myself up. I've had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness and the badness of my heart than ever I had before my conversion. It has often appeared to me that if God should mark iniquity against me, I should appear to be the very worst of all mankind. I know not how better to express what my sins appear to me than by heaping infinite upon infinite and multiplying infinite by infinite. Can you to any de degree identify with Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards? When you've taken the time to really analyze and think about the gravity of your sin, do you think I'm the most vile of mankind? My sin is infinitely grievous to God. Now again, because of the way we're conditioned today, we may think that that's not healthy. We've been told that we, we need to be thinking positively. But dear friend, I'm convinced that we need to cultivate and maintain a greater awareness of and sensitivity to the gravity of our remaining sin. And the reason being leads me to my next and final word of application, and it's this. The path to greater usefulness is found in the valley of humility, not on the mountaintop of pride and self-sufficiency. Remember that God's purpose in the gospel is not to make a lot out of us, to make much of us. That's not his purpose in the gospel. His purpose in the gospel is to make much of Jesus. And one of the ways he does that is to expose our sin and our need for Christ. Now again, I realize that's a different message that's being preached today by many self-esteem preachers. But God cannot use us effectively to further his kingdom until we first put less confidence in ourselves and place more confidence in Jesus himself. And that was precisely the lesson that these three men needed 
to learn before Peter, James, and John could be effective preachers and go on to turn the world upside down. They needed first to be humbled. And so God allows them to fail their Savior not just once, but multiple times. And what's even more remarkable, and I want, to think, want you to think about this for a moment, God has the Holy Spirit record their failures for all the world to see. How would you like God to do that for you? <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I don't think I'd like that to be done, right? But God did it for these men. Why? Why did he publish their failure? Because he wanted to give them more grace. Because he wanted to use them profoundly. And dear brothers and sisters, God wants to give us more grace. God wants to use us. But he can't use us until we come to the end of ourselves, until we lose all sense of self-sufficiency, and until we mortify that remaining pride. You want to be a better spouse? Do you want to be a more godly parent? Do you want to be a more useful church member? Do you want to do exploits for Jesus? Then don't minimize your sin. Don't justify your failures. Remember that according to the Apostle John, part of, quote, walking in the light... And having fellowship with Jesus is regularly acknowledging and confessing our sin. And if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us, to completely forgive us, absolve us, cleanse us from all of our sin from every unrighteous deed. That's what it means to walk in the light. And so, dear friends, let us see our sin in the sin of these disciples. Let us remember that God resists the proud, but He is incredibly generous with His grace to the humble. Let us remember that the path to greater usefulness is found in the valley of humility, not on the mountaintop of self-sufficiency and pride. May God be pleased to impress these truths upon our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your tender mercies, which are new every day. And if you were to mark iniquity, Lord, we confess, not one of us here could stand. But there is forgiveness with the Lord that he might be feared. And how we thank you for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves his own and continues to love them to the end. Though, Father, we look forward with great anticipation next week, 
to be amazed at the gracious way in which Jesus is going to deal with these three sleepy disciples. Encourage our faith with these things. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.